and welcome to A Future Made. I'm Anna Prozajski, I'm a material scientist and writer. And I'm Robbie Armstrong, a reporter and journalist. Together, we're delighted to be bringing you Series 2 of A Future Made, a podcast by Heriot Watt University. And don't worry if you missed out on Series 1, it's available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Yep, and exactly as we did in Series 1, we're going to be finding out how pioneering research at Harriet Watt University in the fields of science, business, technology, design, engineering and psychology is helping to change the future, solve the problems of today and make an impact on the global stage. This week, we're discovering how Harriet Watt academics are tackling the huge problem of waste from used personal protective equipment, or PPE, to reduce waste going to landfill and lower emissions too. We're going to be hearing from academics from the School of Engineering and Physical Sciences and the Institute of Mechanical, Process and Energy Engineering at Harriet Watt University. All right, Anna, so in series one, we talked about sustainability in fast fashion, and I took a wee trip to Harriet Watts Gala Shields campus. It was a bit of a journey home for me as a Borders boy, and I heard all about their efforts to reduce chemical and material waste in the industry, um, and I had a great time looking around that campus. It's absolutely amazing. This week, though, we're focusing on something that should pique your interest even more. We're using chemistry to break down PPE. And I know that you are a massive materials nerd, you're a materials scientist. Mm -hmm. So how hard is it really to break down plastic-based stuff like PPE masks? In short, it's extremely difficult, and that's for a number of reasons. When we talk about plastics, we're talking about a whole family, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different materials When it comes to objects like a PPE mask, there are a number of different materials even in a PPE mask, right? You've got the main component of it, the fabric bit, which is actually made out of a plastic called polypropylene. Then you've got your little elastic sort of bits that go around your ears. That's a different material. And then the nose strip that you kind of bend to fit it to your face, that's actually made out of aluminium. So when we talk about recycling plastics, there's two processes that we have to think about. The first Mm -hmm. is making sure that what we're recycling is a pure material. And so when it comes to a PPE mask, what we have to do is to separate those three different components, first of all, as the first step, which for something as small as a PPE mask is quite fiddly and time consuming to do. The second thing we have to do is to think of the materials and how we're going to be able to recycle them or break them down um, in biological processes. And for plastic materials, that's traditionally very difficult because the molecular bonds inside plastics are so strong that most of the time it's very difficult for us to be able to break those down in efficient processes. It's such a hot topic of research at the moment because waste And as a subsection of that, plastic waste is such a huge problem for our environment. It it all does make sense, but I have a tiny brain and (laughs) I find it hard to compute. But I have been doing some research and apparently it takes around 450 years for a face mask to decompose. I'm not sure how we know that. I don't think they had face masks, you know, in the like 16th, 17th century, but (laughs) the boffins have worked it out. Another face mask factoid I've got for you. So at the height of the pandemic, 129 billion single use face masks were being used monthly around the world. The UK alone used 55 million of them just every single day at the height of the pandemic. That was just every single day. Like you can't get 
a bigger problem than that really it seems just astronomical and this project is really set up as a response to that problem to the huge quantities of PPE that have been just thrown away that are sort of single use and you know they obviously challenge waste management goals and um, pollution targets net zero targets yeah those numbers are really staggering if we think about what's happening during those 450 years right that face mask isn't just probably sitting in the ocean minding its own business, right? It's interacting with that environment. It's breaking down. It's releasing chemicals. It's fragmenting into smaller pieces. Those pieces might be ingested by animals. Those pieces might end up in all sorts of places that we wouldn't want them to be, namely the food chain quite a lot of the time. So it, it's even worse than it seems on the surface then? Yep, sorry to say it's even worse <laughs> oh, than it sounds. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Right, so... We're going to be hearing from academics at the School of Engineering and Physical Science today, as we said. First up, we've got Aymaro Sana. He's Assistant Professor in Chemical and Process Engineering. Aymaro's work focuses on thermochemical conversion processes, and in particular, he's looking at how to turn biomass into biofuels and biochemicals. In the past, I was developing similar processes, in particular pyrolysis process for the textile industry in the UK, uh, with the harvest tweed in particular. Globus Group, which is the largest producer of uh, PPE in the UK, last year they produced more than 1 billion uh, face masks and more than 300,000 respirators units, contact me because uh, they knew that we had expertise uh, for basically converting uh, uh, waste into useful products uh, and uh, from there basically we started uh, a discussion which ended up in uh, the project that we were starting. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, waste management pyramid. If we start from the better solution, I would say that not use or producing plastic would be the ideal one or replacing plastic with bioplastics would be ideal solution. Unfortunately, this is not easy to do because the bioplastics that we're producing have properties that do not match those of fossil fuels that are plastics, which is a serious problem. And also, we cannot stop to use plastic. Basically, he's picking up a really important point here, which is that we can't just replace the plastics that we use now with other materials, even if they are what he calls bioplastics, which means plastics that um, are made from materials that we can find in nature, because those materials' properties aren't as good. And so they're not as strong, they're not as durable, they're not as transparent. Whatever materials' properties we're looking for from the plastics that we use at the moment, we don't yet have materials that can be their direct replacements without accepting a significant drop in quality, which at the moment we're not really willing to do. Yeah, Imaro said this one phrase, which was that all that glitters is not gold. And in the process they're using, there's a lot of stuff that they end up with at the end, which they can't really use. So it's their job to find out what they can use and what that what the purpose could be for that waste product, how they can recycle it, essentially. Plastics at the moment have brilliant materials properties, which we really rely on. And as he says, we, we cannot just get rid of plastics. Like he says, the prevention and reuse it sounds 
easy, but actually chemically speaking, materially speaking, it's really very difficult. So plastic is almost the perfect material for so many uses like food production and healthcare and medicine. There's there's so many uses in which it is just the, the perfect material. But then when it comes to actually reusing it or recycling it or getting rid of it, it's almost the worst material. Exactly. And I think the pandemic was a really good case study for that because, you know, these disposable masks undoubtedly saved uncountable lives, right? And it was the fact that they were disposable that made them safe to use, cheap to get hold of, um, and easy to distribute because they're, you know, they're lightweight. They can be packaged really small. In the worst scenario, uh, plastics waste ends up in, in the environment, and we all aware of all the programs, tropical beaches we cover in plastic. We know that microplastics enter in the biocycle, so ends up also in our bodies. So it's very, very scary. So what we do with landfill most of the plastic, but probably about. Uh, 50-60% of the plastic, which is no good for the environment. Plastic in the landfill will uh, be decomposed somehow by uh, microorganisms and will release methane, which is uh, a very, very powerful uh, greenhouse gas. To avoid that, we started incinerating plastic, which is another way to get rid of it. We do it quite often also in the UK. Also, this creates environmental issues because plastic is basically burn a very, very high temperature and release uh, toxins such as dioxin and also uh, produce some uh, final uh, metal ashes, which we then move in the problem from one place to the other. So between these, uh, the, the best solution, which is difficult to achieve at least in the coming decades and the worst uh, solution in between, there is recycling. Now, traditionally, mechanical recycling is what is used. However, it is possible to mechanically recycle only certain types of plastic, two types in seven different categories. And also, it's very difficult uh, to have plastic which is uh, not contaminated. So until 2018, all the Western countries were sending all the recyclable plastic to China. However, they stop it because of contamination. So now we need to uh, deal with that in our own countries. And this is something that is also very uh, uneconomic. Plastic comes from crude oil and making it from scratch is very cheap. So uh, recycling plastic uh, is not economic for companies that want to do that. It was despicable behaviour for us just to export all of our waste. And, and like, fair enough that China in recent years has just said, actually, we don't want it anymore. Um, you, can, you can keep it and deal with it where you are. And so there was this mad scramble everywhere else in the world to develop these, you know, new industrial processes that could actually handle the waste closer to home. Um, those seven different categories that he was talking about, the seven different categories of plastic, you will be more familiar to these than you think. You know, when you look on, um, on the underside of a plastic piece of packaging and you see a little number in a triangular recycling sign that tells you what sort of plastic it is and there's seven different codes plastic recycling codes and um, that will tell you what sort of plastic it is and recyclers use this so that they can group those different numbers together um, so that they can recycle them using the same process because like we talked about earlier separating the materials what he calls contamination making sure that you've got a pure material that you're trying to recycle is actually a massive part of the problem all right, so where does Imaro and his team come in? Well, it's time to introduce you to his partner in plastic. That's Raffaella Occoni, and she is a professor of chemical engineering and no less than an OBE. 
She is also at the School of Engineering, Geoscience, Infrastructure and Society. Raffaella lays claim to being the first female professor of chemical engineering in Scotland, which is pretty, pretty cool. Very cool. Here she is explaining the process they use to break down PPE. In this particular case, what we are trying to do, we are trying to optimize and use a process which is actually well known, but we are trying to adapt to the, to the specific use of PPEs as well as to optimize it. A process I was saying that it's called pyrolysis, which is the thermal degradation of plastics. Uh, which uh, happens in uh, absence of oxygen, or as we say, in uh, inert atmosphere. So what we are trying to do, we are to we are trying to degrade the plastics, and uh, to obtain out of the plastic hydrocarbons. What is called in general pyrolysis oil, which is made of hydrocarbons and hydrogen and other components that, of course, we will need later on. They are raw materials that later on we, we can separate or we can distillate to make later on fuels that can be otherwise used. So, Anna, I'm hoping that you can elucidate on pyrolysis here. The closest I got to it, and I, it was almost like Raffaella sort of nodded in a very kind fashion. Where I was like, is this like composting? And she was like, well, yes, but here are all the reasons why it's not like composting. So I was hoping that you could help uh, me, but also listeners at home, understand pyrolysis. So I think it would be helpful to kind of understand what plastics are made out of. So when we make plastics, what we do... They're called polymers, right? The scientific name for it is polymer. What they do is they take very small molecules and they kind of clip them together into a big long chain. So those those small molecules are called monomers. And then when you clip them all together into a chain, it's called a polymer. And when you do that, the bonds that hold the monomers together into that chain are extremely strong. And so what we're talking about here in terms of the trouble of breaking down plastic is the trouble of breaking those bonds again. Because... To make the plastic and create those chains, that's a kind of one-way reaction. And then we make the material, it goes out into the world. When we bring it back and we want to recycle that material, ideally what we want to do is to break those bonds in the chain to break the material back down into its monomers, right? If you imagine it a bit like Lego, you've got your monomers as the kind of individual blocks. You put it out into the world, it does its thing, it comes back. And what you want to do is to smash that object up again into the individual blocks. And this is what we're talking about, are processes that you can do that smashing up. But it's actually very chemically difficult to snip those chains up or kind of bash those blocks apart. So pyrolysis is one way of doing this. And as she's saying, basically, it's just you heat it up in the absence of oxygen. And what that does is a chemical process that aims to snip up those polymer molecules into their monomers again. And when when you've got those monomers you can then reform them into new plastics. It sounds simple in theory, but it's all a very, very tricky chemical process. We're going to come on to a different recycling project. And when I told them about the Harriet Watt project, they were like, that sounds incredible. That is very high level scientific stuff. They were a bit enamoured. It is. And this is the kind of holy grail, really. To go back to your composting analogy, with composting, as you say, it's a really similar process. It's the same aim, which is to snip up all of these long chains of molecules and take them back to monomers. In composting, it's done by biological creatures, you know, biological processes. I think what Raffaella is, is referring to is doing this in a chemical process, like in an, in an industrial plant. 
We're going to have a listen to Aymaro. He's going to give us a bit more detail on how the process works. You put the plastic into a reactor, which function is exactly to, to transfer the heat to the, the plastic particles. Do you go to a high temperature between 400 and 700 degrees Celsius? At the temperature, the plastic uh, start to crack down. So the bonds that link all the different units in the polymers crack down into small fragments and go in, uh, in vapor gas phase. This vapor gas phase then can be uh, recovered, partially liquefied, so you get a liquid product. You will have also gas product, and uh, a small fraction go into a solid uh, char, biochar, which is less useful although it could have some environmental applications, such as soil amendment. The aim of uh, the technology is to focus on all the liquid products, which typically include uh, compounds or molecules that are in the range of diesel or gasoline, uh, or uh, the gas products that then can be further uh, refined into uh, other chemicals, such as hydrogen or methane or methanol. These products of diesels, methanes, ethanols, you know, those are all really useful chemicals for us. So it's fascinating to hear about the other uses or the end uses of this type of process. Okay, cool. So Rafaela did a good job of sort of explaining what the overall aim is. The project then is uh, aiming really to create a sort of circular economy approach to plastics. And we also believe that by solving the problem of masks, we actually can provide a solution which can be much more general and can be extrapolated and used in the future at large scale also for other kinds of plastics. Here's Raffaella on how the process works. Essentially, we use uh, a tank, which is our reactor, and uh, the tank can be heated in different ways. So there are means for eating the tank and for, for thermally degrade that to start the pyrolysis process, which is like a combustion, but with, without um, oxygen, so in absence of oxygen. So basically what she's saying is it's a bit like burning stuff, but without the fire, <laughs> because you know how fire can't exist without oxygen, right? What they're doing is they're kind of, they're burning it. Like I think the word pyrolysis comes from some sort of Latin or Greek word for burning or fire. Um, but but there's no fire involved in this, right? It's just heating it and causing chemical reactions to occur like it would when it burns, except there is no fire because there's no oxygen. So all of those different products, the gases, the liquids, the solids, those all come out at the other end. And then, like we've heard, they have all these different uses. Rafaela talked about the typical uses for pyrolysis oil and some of the ways it's used in different countries as well. In uh, pyrolysis has been uh, for a long time thought also like uh, something which could uh, uh, distribute production of uh, energy because uh, it has been uh, relatively successful with farmers in, in Canada because they could have uh, small pyrolyzers, small reactors, uh, where they could actually process the waste from the core production. So all the waste, they could create this bio-oil that probably for machinery which is needed in agriculture might be good enough. 
I love the idea of like Canadian farmers running tractors on corn oil. Yeah, me too. That's such a smart, elegant solution, right? The waste is produced there. You run it on site, you run this pyrolysis process on site and you get out the fuel that you need. Yeah. It's like a perfect circular economy. What we are trying to do, we are trying to accelerate the recycling of, of and, and reuse what it has been already taken out of the well. Yeah, so there's two benefits from this, right? It's not only creating usable products out of plastic waste, but it's preventing plastic waste going into landfill and biodegrading there over much, much longer periods and producing toxic byproducts in the land. It's so, so exciting when you think of the scale of the problem that we outlined at the start. If you just imagine those ash heaps of plastic waste and then the potential that the work that they're doing right now has, it gives you a lot of hope for science, really, and for engineering. Oh, I'm pleased to hear that. (laughs) We'll be back with more stories from Harriet Watt School of Engineering and Physical Sciences in just a moment. But first, we're going to hear from a Harriet Watt University graduate on how being at the university has given them new and brilliant opportunities out in the real world. Over to Nicola Payne. My name is Nicola Payne. I am a sustainability analyst at a startup in the energy sector called Goal 7 and I studied an integrated master's in chemical engineering with oil and gas technology at Harriet Watt. We have a lot of clients in the oil and gas industry, in the energy industry. Well, my job is to help them to strategically reduce their emissions or find strategies to kind of get them towards net zero. Before I started a degree, I I enjoyed chemistry and physics and maths at school, so naturally that kind of led me to looking down the route of chemical engineering. It was also a good high-paying job, but throughout the five years that I studied there, there was such a shift in the energy sector on climate change is a real problem. And it's being able to understand the industry to change it. And as as I kind of got to the later years of my degree, I realised that this is somewhere where I really wanted to implement change. My degree at Harriet Watt definitely helped me gain a base level understanding of chemical engineering and looking at things from a molecular and electron level, where it's been important to have this background, especially in the energy sector with so many new technologies in the space. For example, we had a project in Malaysia where I implemented a five kilowatt hydrogenerator with an Engineers Without Borders Society. Doing that really kind of brought home the fact that you can do real life projects and that the subject that you're theoretically studying will have implementable knowledge. If you're interested in finding out about chemical engineering or any other course at Harriet Watt University, head to hw.ac.uk. Now, Anna, I was trying to think of a more everyday example of the work that Imaro and Rafaela do at Harriet Watt and did a bit of digging and basically found out that there was actually a PPE recycling project going on just down the road from my house, literally five minutes away. So I went down to find out a bit more. Hi, nice to meet you. How did you? Who's the wee doggy? This is Heidi. Heidi? Yeah. 
My name's Lottie Blades Barrett and I'm the manager of Rags to Riches. Rags to Riches is a Govan Hill Baths Community Trust project. Um, we're based in the south side of Glasgow and we specialise in the recycling of plastics, textiles and woodwork. So Govan Hill is a really fantastic community for circular economy projects. Um, there's loads of stuff going on and I think Rags to Riches kind of fits uh, really well within the local community because we provide all sorts of community outreach and enrichment courses, uh, workshops, opportunities, as well as kind of promoting circular economy projects and uh, zero waste products. Hi, so I'm Delphine Dallison and I'm the Plastics Workshop Facilitator for Rags to Riches at uh, Govan Hill Bath Trust. Refuse to Landfill is a local organisation that got in touch with us because they had got hold of a large amount of PPE, so in particular plastic visors that had been donated to the NHS as part of the pandemic effort to try and help keep our NHS workers safe. And these visors were going to end up in landfill, so they got in touch with us to see if we would like to recycle them. It was a tricky one because there was nothing necessarily there to identify what type of plastic uh, they were. But uh, luckily I've worked in 3D printing in the past, so I was able to identify, as we expected, a blend of PLA mainly and a little bit of ABS and a few other bits. I was able to identify the plastics. Uh, PLA in particular is really easy to recognize because uh, when you melt it, it has a very sweet smell because originally it comes from uh, cornstarch leftovers. It really helps in the recycling if you're able to, to identify the plastic because different plastics uh, have different melting temperatures. So if you don't know what plastic it is, you can't uh, melt it down. Uh, which is the main way in which we recycle plastic. As a result, we ended up with a, a huge pile of very colourful, bright um, PLA, which was uh, our first uh, large uh, donation of plastic that we've been working with. So we're in your workshop, I guess, and it's yes. um, a, quite a small room, but on the there's shelves just with all sorts of different coloured plastic. And the one you just picked up is like this atomic sort of green, <laughs> exactly. and there's yellows, there's purples, there's oranges, there's reds and all sorts. What happens once you've identified the plastics? How do you break them down into these little, they're almost like, chips I guess how yeah. would you describe that plastic chips definitely so uh, once we uh, we've identified the plastic uh, the next job is making sure that it's clean once it's nice and dry and clean that's when we can look at grinding it down so we grind it down into these small chips and behind you there you can see the big uh, green grinder that we use so would you like to have a have a go at using yeah the sure daddy to stick the a visor on and no, helmet. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's fairly safe to use, to be honest. Uh, so I'll just um, switch it on here. You can see the chips kind of coming out at the bottom here as it gets ground up. It looks like it's sort of snowing. It's exactly how it feels, yes, exactly like that. What happens next? What's the next process? Because you've got these nice trinkets and earrings and stuff like that. So I'm imagining there's quite a lot of steps in between getting them to there, but how <laughs> does that happen? 
Depending on the plastic that we're using, there's two different ways we can go. So if it's plastic that we can't identify, we do cold processes. So that tends to be cold casting. So things like, uh, so we use the plastic as an aggregate in, and we mix in with something like jesmonite. So these are jesmonite pots. It's like creating like a terrazzo effect, basically where the chips of plastic show through in the, uh, in the jasmineite and uh, that can then be set into a variety of molds, uh, silicon molds. And there's pretty much, you know, uh, it's up to you. <laughs> Your imagination is limit in terms of what you want to be making with that. The reason why we try to, obviously when we first started out, we were limited in the arranged plastic that we had. So some of it is PLA and things that we can identify because we had the, these lovely colors. Um, and once we realized that we, what colors we were looking for and so on, we then started a program where we asked people to donate uh, kids' toys, broken kids' toys, because those have the lovely bright colors. There's no regulations that say that uh, they have to identify what type of plastic they use in the toys, which is just, to me, that's mad because, you know, young children are putting this in their mouths, etc. You'd want to know what plastic is being used. But uh, until the regulations are there, uh, all that plastic uh, can't be identified once it's been made and it's all ending up in landfill. So... Using this cold process, we're able to recycle plastic that would never normally be recycled uh, by grinding it down and using it as a compound in the, in this cast jasmineite process. The other side of it is uh, hot processes. So with hot processes, we can only use plastic that we can identify. We've got an injection molder, an extruder, and we also have a small sheet press at the moment, which we're hoping to scale up to a one meter by one meter press. And we have a laser cutter next door. So those are the processes that we have available to us to make things. We can also, so with uh, things like PLA, uh, we can turn it into plastic sheets. And those plastic sheets can then be used for laser cutting. So uh, that's how we've made uh, the various uh, uh, bits of jewellery that you can see here. This sounds like such a cool project. I really desperately want to go. I'm so jealous, Robbie, that you got to go and spend time with them. If you're ever in Glasgow, absolutely drop in. Very welcoming. And there's so many other strands to that project as well. It's nice to hear how kind of mindful they are about the new objects that they're making out of this waste plastic, right? They're objects that are being designed to last for a long time. Um, and are going to be kind of useful and aesthetic and functional at the same time. And the end result is really striking as well. These earrings, like my partner has some, and they're, they're, they're beautiful. They're so striking and there's like lots of different colours within them. And, you know, they look like art pieces, mm. but they're also relatively affordable. Like they're not crazy expensive. And they're made out of PPE. Mm. And they've got these cool little plant pots and planters and like trinket boxes. What they're doing is they are treating plastic waste as a material that has inherent value and they're adding value even more by processing it and making it into new things and changing our thinking around waste as being just waste to waste as being a potential new resource for us to make new things and keep that material in the circular economy for as long as possible. 
We also heard at the start there from Lottie Blades Barrett. So she did her MSc in Ethics and Fashion at Heriot Watts Gala Shields campus, but she set up a business called Second Cashmere and they source and restore secondhand cashmere, which is an industry with huge amounts of waste. And their whole idea is to promote sustainability in luxury fashion. So there's there's quite a circularity there as well. You can see that, you know, she's gained the skills and knowledge and been able to then apply that since leaving Harriet Watt. And it is a contrast to the work that Rafaela and Aymaro are doing because their aim is to scale up a project to a huge industrial global level, which would have massive wide ranging impacts to their industry, but you know also to the wider world. So they're similar projects, but they're also operating at far different scales. And this is where Rafaela's modeling expertise comes in. We believe that, of course, we can scale up the process and this is essentially our aim. So we are aiming in collaborations with Globus Group to take our work at the lab scale and to bring it out to the real world at the industrial level. And my personal work and my personal contribution in this project will be to facilitate and accelerate the scaling up of the process by using mathematical tools. So essentially what I will do, I will model the process, take the data that will be produced in our lab and we'll use them to model the process, to scale up the process and also to see what is the best setup of the process, the best process conditions so that we can come out with an efficient solution for recycling of plastics. Just to sort of give you a bit of an idea of where they're at with that, they've proven that at lab scale, so that's using one kilogram. And now what their aim is, is to scale up with their partner, which is Globus Group, at their Dumfries plant, which is 100 tonnes of plastic waste per year. So this would be their initial target for their pilot plant. But they'd hope to ramp this up all the way to 100,000 tonnes per year because there's such a huge global demand for this. Rafaela uses various mathematical models to run tests at different temperatures and then they try and predict what the results would be if they scale up or down or, you, you know, change the variables. It's not the case that you can just do an experiment in a lab and then make it hundreds or thousands of times greater in an industrial plant and think that it's going to work the same. It's a bit like if you make a cake in your oven... If you're making a cupcake, you have to cook that cake for a much shorter period of time compared to like something in a loaf tin that has a bigger volume and takes more time for that cake to cook. Does that make sense? So you have to adjust the temperatures, you have to adjust the times. These parameters in your process, they're doing the same thing in their industrial plant with their plastic uh, recycling, but tweaking those parameters is is very difficult. And so using mathematical modelling is a way to predict what you're going to have to put in at your chemical plant in order to have the same process happen as your mini version in the lab. So although at the moment it's happening, you know, a one kilogram test project and it's this two-year pilot, really what we're talking about is revolutionising the way we deal with plastic and PPE waste and how we reuse that and what use it could have in a more circular economy. The fact that it's a knowledge transfer partnership is really key because it's not just academics within the ivory towers saying, oh look, we can do this in the lab and we think you could scale it up into industry. It's having the research 
founded in that partnership from the off and having industry collaborating and participating in that research throughout, that means that once the findings from that project are finalised, that will be useful and sort of believable for industry and kind of welcomed by the industrial side of these processes. As ever, in a future made, collaboration is key. And we've heard that time and time again. And this is no exception. Yeah, so I think it's about time for us to wrap up our own knowledge transfer partnership, Robbie, between you and I. So thank you for listening to A Future Made. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just search for A Future Made and you can catch up on all seven episodes from Series 1 if you missed any of that. If you want to find out more about the School of Engineering and Physical Sciences, you can head over to Harriet Watt University's website, which is hw.ac.uk.